Take your Bibles and go with me this morning to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37 this morning. As Pastor mentioned a minute ago, I was here back in 2013. Uh, that tour, I was a sophomore in Bible college. That tour did something for me that was significant in my heart. Um, as I had gone into my freshman year of Bible college, I was telling some of the college and career uh, classroom this morning, I went to Bible college kicking and screaming. I did not want to be there. I was there because I was honoring my father, but I was afraid of going to Bible college because I was afraid God was going to call me to preach. And God, when he does that, doesn't he send you the deepest, darkest places of Africa where you have to boil water and beat snakes? Isn't that how he works? At least that's what, that was my assumption because I didn't have an accurate view of who God is. In fact, God loves, he delights to do good things for his children. And so when I went to Bible college as a freshman, uh, it was the third night in, we have opening revival meetings, the third night in, God dealt with me and uh, it came to a head of whether or not I was going to yield to the Lord's will for my life and I responded in part, I went to the back and sat down with a counselor and we sat in the counseling room for two and a half hours as I wrestled my dreams and God's plan. I felt like a roller coaster just rolling back and forward and finally by God's grace I surrendered and there was no lightning strike. But as I walked out of that uh, counseling room knowing I had just made a transaction with God, I was really looking to see now, now what? What happens from here? And I had two weeks later, in my own devotions, I came across the passage at the end of Judges going into the book of Joshua that ju the passage came alive. I remember pouring over it in my own devotions. Now remember, up to this point, I never thought uh, preaching always seemed boring. And as I read that passage, it came alive to me. And I remember thinking, man, I'd like to preach that. And then I thought, whoa, maybe that's how preachers think. Maybe I could be a preacher. And in fact, uh, my sophomore year, I got a chance to travel, and that was a, a learning time. We came to this church, and pastor threw us into opportunities, and I preached a teen Sunday school class in that back hallway, and I preached that passage, the passage God gave me my freshman year, on a little boy who had just uh, been tempted that week and had taken, uh, had taken part of some, some drugs that week, first time he'd ever tried it, God dealt with him in that message that God gave me freshman year, and he came down front, and I met him right down here, and he got right with the Lord. And so I have some incredible memories from this church, and I do remember a yellow wall, a very yellow wall. And I had a picture in my phone for a number of years of that yellow wall. Now, a couple years ago, my church was doing a, um, a renovation project, and I was part of, and I have painted for a number of years now, so I was part of getting the paints for it, and I ran to Sherwin-Williams, and I ordered some primer, we tinted the primer, it was supposed to be this cream color, and I was off by one number when I gave it to Sherwin-Williams, and the cream color primer came out a, just a bold yellow. So maybe it's my fault that you guys had the color, I don't know. I could have just cursed you in that way, you never know. Uh, I am very grateful to be here. My wife, I will not have her stand, but Emma, if you could raise your hand over here. My, raise it high, honey. Raise, there we go. The one that's beat red right now, that's my wife, if you're wondering where she is. So that's my wife, Emma. Uh, we have a two-year-old son. or He's almost two years uh, here in just a couple of weeks. He's in the nursery. His name is Gilbert. And then we have a, a, a little girl on the way due in January, which we're excited about. As Pastor mentioned, I graduated from Bible College in 2016, finished seminary in 18. We got married in 18. And then in 19, God led us to take the step of faith and launch into full-time evangelism. And it was truly a step of faith. But I, I want to mention this. Living the life of faith is incredibly exciting. Amen. It really is. 
The, the fact that the Lord has to provide for us on a regular, weekly basis, and, and I was telling the College of Career class, the Lord has provided us this summer. We were able to purchase a fifth-wheel travel trailer. Uh, we paid for it with cash, uh, a, a trailer that was $30,000. The Lord provided for it, just an incredible. Uh, and, and actually, I don't have time to tell the whole miracle now, but the Lord has made a way that we were able to purchase just recently. We, we, we ordered a 2022 F-350 uh, King Cab, dually diesel, the whole thing. And just at 29 years of age, I have been amazed at what God can do. And so living the life of faith is really exciting because you just step out there, not blindly based upon what God has led you to and say, Father, if you said to do it, we're going to step out there and let's just see what happens. And then God does things. And you say, wow, I'm a great evangelist. No. You say, man, God is big. God can and in Colossians 1 says that we ought to uh, make it our goal that he always receives the preeminence. That is our goal, to always say, wow, God is big. So we are excited, thankful to be here, thankful that Pastor uh, allowed us to come down here. We were in Big Sandy last week. We're here, and then we're going to take a couple days in San Antonio uh, next week, and then our next meeting is in Pennsylvania. So we've got a little bit of a drive after that. As I was asking the Lord what he would lead us to this morning, he led me to this passage, Genesis chapter 37. I've preached out of this several times. But I believe this is what the Lord would have for us this morning. A number of you are, uh, you're new to the church since I was here, so I don't recognize you, I don't know you, I, I don't know your stories. Pastor has not told me anything about this church as far as the needs in this church. So I've gone to the Father, and this is what he has led us to this morning. So I believe this is what God would give us and would have for us. In Genesis chapter 37, we see a very familiar family that we're all accustomed to. It's the family of Joseph. But this morning, we are going to look at a conflict between Joseph's ten older brothers and their father and between Joseph. We are going to see this morning how the bitterness of the ten older brothers affected them and how, church family, it unfortunately so greatly affects us. Look with me in Genesis chapter 37. We're going to start in verse 2. We're going to read just verses 2, 3, and 4. We're going to focus on verse 4. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. <clears throat> now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. In this passage that we are looking at here this morning, it's a very familiar passage. We have the patriarch uh, Jacob, or Israel, he'll also be called. He's got four different wives and many different children, 12 sons and a daughter. In this family, because we're so accustomed to learning about this family and because we're so used to lifting Jacob, the dad, up on a pedestal because he is a man of faith, we often miss the severe shortcomings of his fathering, of his parenting. And because of the shortcomings of Jacob's parenting, the ten eldest brethren in this family were moved to be angry. Now, I do not, the purpose of this message is not to throw the dad under the bus. And we're going to learn this here in a moment. But whenever someone is dealing with bitterness, it's not their, their excuse, their way out, their solution is not to say, well, they did wrong and I'm hurting because of them. It's never to blame. You will never find solution when you blame. 
And yet, for those of us who are parents or grandparents in this room, we would be helped to realize the errors of the Father. But as a church body this morning, I believe that God is leading us to this passage because there is... Maybe of all the sins that I have been around counseling, committed, or seen the scripture deal with, just even in practical life, the one sin that I see that destroys more churches is this one sin right here, and that is the sin of bitterness. The one sin that has destroyed more marriages, the one sin that has destroyed more families, the one sin that, has, that sometimes lays under the surface and yet affects and defiles so many of God's people is the sin of bitterness. So this morning, I ask that you would open your heart to the Lord and say, Father, is it possible that I have been affected? Lord, is it possible that I am defiling my family? Lord, is it possible that I am part of the problem in my family, in the church, whatever it may be? Lord, have I been affected? Lord, do I need to deal with this? Father, I ask in these few moments that we have this morning that you would open your word and you would open our hearts. Spirit of God, I do not know these people, and yet I believe this is the passage you have led us to, so there's someone who needs to be helped this morning. And so, Spirit of God, I ask you would hover over us, that your wind would pass through this room here, and that we would be um, convicted and helped. And so we are trusting you, Lord, and looking to you for this morning's deliverance. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It was December 1944. For those of you who are history buffs, you know what's going on in the world theater. It is World War II. Up to this point, uh, uh, the Axis powers have made a really a show of the Allies. They've, they've dominated in both the, the European front and the Atlantic theater. And yet by D-Day of 19, uh, 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 earlier in 1944, D-Day would happen that the American forces are beginning to move their way from the west to the east and Russia is beginning to descend from the north and, and starting to go west and it's looking grim for Germany. Japan is realizing Italy has already fallen and Japan is trying to do whatever they can to try to secure uh, uh, their position as leaders in the Axis powers. And so Japan was starting to land large battalions on soldiers in the Philippine Islands to try to secure it because they knew as, as the Allies were moving across the Pacific, they'd already won several decisive victories and, and they knew that the Philippines' string of islands was their only chance as a buffer between Japan and the Allies. So it was December of 1944, the Imperial Japanese Army landed a large battalion of soldiers on the island of Lubang. There was an officer who was in charge of these men. His name was Hiro Onoda, and, and I'm not pronouncing it probably the way a nat native Japanese speaker would be, but that was his name, and he was given a charge and instruction. You are to, to halt the Allied advance. You're to do whatever it takes to keep them from taking this island. They were given two instructions. You are not allowed to commit suicide and you are not allowed to surrender. In other words, die to the last man, fight to the last man. And so Onoda and his men secured the island and they began committing guerrilla warfare, uh, burning crops, cutting communication lines, shooting anyone that looked like a soldier, trying to keep the allies from advancing or, or the loyal Filipinos who would, would have allied uh, uh, loves to, to, from keeping them from taking over the island. It's now 1945, as we know our history, World War II is quickly coming to a close. I believe it was April of 1945 when Hitler finally in a bunker in, in Berlin committed suicide with he and his girlfriend. Uh, Stalin, or excuse me, uh, uh, Mussolini has already been executed. 
and now Russia is descending from the north and the allies are coming in from the west to the east and it's very clear that the handwriting is on the wall for Germany. Finally, Germany surrenders in, in two different days as Russia and the Allies collided in Berlin and then the two bombs were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. There in September of 1945 in the Bay of Tokyo after several years of brutal fighting, an unconditional surrender is finally signed by the Japanese and World War II is over. But on the bay, in, on the island of Lubang in the Philippines, there is an officer and his men who do not know the war is over. And so for the remainder of 1945, they continued their guerrilla warfare, shooting people, burning crops, cutting communication lines, trying to do whatever it is to continue obeying their responsibility, their command of their officers. It's now 1946. The American boys, as a, as a whole, we've come back across the sea. Our, our boys are getting married. They're going back to homes. They're, they're uh, starting Bible colleges across the country. They're starting their education. Uh, fellas are now trying to start rebuilding their life, and we're trying to forget about the tragedies of the past great war. And yet back on the island of Lubang, there's an officer and his men who are continuing to fight. For the remainder of 1946... 1947, 1948, it's 1950 now. America is involved in Korea and yet back in the Philippines there's an officer and his men who have not received word that the war is over and they are still fighting World War II. For us the war lasted only six years but now for them it's lasted some ten years. It's now 1955, 1960. We're involved in Vietnam. America has moved on. A World War II is in the history books, and yet back in the island of Lubang, there's just a small cluster of soldiers left and an officer by the name of Onoda who's continuing to fight World War II. See, the Filipino government, they knew about these holdouts. And so they would fly airplanes over the island. They dropped leaflets. They were copies of the newspapers from back on in 1945. And, and they were showing the war's over, and, and they scattered them all over the island. But Onoda and his men just assumed it was propaganda. The Filipino government set up uh, these loudspeakers and they would blast radio bulletins into the jungle all around the island trying to tell them, hey, the war's over. Come out, please come out. And yet again, they assumed it was propaganda continuing to fight. The police would go into the jungles trying to find these holdouts only to be shot at or be murdered. Finally, Onoda's men are whittled down to three He's got three men left. It's now 1970. One has been shot, one has deserted, and the other one disappeared. He does not know where he is. And so Onoda is left alone. It's now 1971. 1972. 1973. And Onoda is still on the island. He's now in his mid-50s fighting a battle he could never win. There's a man by the name of Suzuki. He was a young journalist looking for his way to cut his teeth in the journalist world. And so uh, he had heard of this legend by the name of Onoda. So this journalist Suzuki traveled from Japan to the island of Lubang dressed in a, a, a Bermuda shorts and a Hawaiian shirt. He looked nothing like a soldier. And that's probably why Onoda did not kill him. Because the journalist began trekking through the jungle looking for this famed legend. Sure enough, there came a day in 1973 when Suzuki stumbled upon the campsite of Onoda and there a mid-50s man in tattered uniform and a shiny rifle is sitting across the fire. 
Suzuki sat down with him and began to pour out the last 29 and a half years of, Amer of world history and reveal to this man, Sir, you have been fighting a battle that has been over for almost three decades. You need to come out of the jungle. Onoda, in his fierce loyalty to the fight that he had been given, refused to go out until the officer that had commissioned him with that first order to go to the island would come back and take his sword and, and confirm the story. He would not stop fighting until that officer came back to the island. So Suzuki left, went back to the Japanese government, told them of the holdout. They uh, brought that officer out of, out of uh, retirement, put him in military fatigues, flew him back to Lubang, and he and Suzuki traveled through the jungle to that man's campsite. There they sat around the fire with him, and the officer began to explain how the last three decades of Onoda's life had been given to truly a waste. And instructed him, sir, you are under orders of our imperial Japanese government. You are supposed to cease and desist, surrender, and come out of the jungle. That day, can you imagine what it must have been like for Onoda, a tattered uniform, he had entered into the jungle in his mid-twenties and he's leaving now in his mid-fifties. The prime of his life has been given to a fight that he could never win. Thirty years of every bone, muscle, and sinew has been dedicated to a battle that meant so much to him. And yet it was a worthless and useless cause. Church family, that is the illustration of bitterness. Because truly, bitterness is the battle you will never win. Certainly, as we hear a story like that and understanding the severity of a sin of bitterness, all of us would agree this morning, that's a bad sin. I don't want to be a part of that. I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to commit that. But actually, the, de the hardest challenge in dealing with bitterness is admitting that we might be bitter. In this passage, we see a group of brothers who have been deeply hurt by their, older, by their, their father. And because the hurt is real, and because of what dad has done to these boys, the hurt is so personal and so real, it seems to them that to release their brother, to release their father, is a fight that they don't want to give up. And so verse 4 is going to give us three different ways that bitterness affects a man. Now before we get into that, I want us to notice here the original hurt. The verse 2 tells us that um, Joseph, he's, a, he's 17 years old. He's not an old man. In fact, he would have been the 11th son of Jacob, meaning he's got 10 older brothers that we can only guess these men are in their 40s. Maybe some of them are maybe close to 50. We don't know exactly how old they are, but these older brothers... Are, are grown men who have families of their own. And yet these older brothers have been set aside and Joseph, the younger brother, has been given a place of preference over these older brothers. And the scripture also tells us in verse, four, uh, in verse 2 that the ten older brothers were not godly men. They had an evil report. Now in verse 3, the scripture gives us a little bit of an understanding of how poor the parenting of Jacob really was. Now the verse 3 says, now Israel, this is Jacob, the dad, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because 
He was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. Now, those two phrases, many times when I was growing up, I heard those two phrases, and I thought that it meant that Joseph was the youngest of the family, and yet somehow dad loved him as the youngest, and his display of love for him was to give him a coat that was expensive, like it was material that maybe was rare, or the coloring, the dye was rare. That's how I had always been taught this story, and probably some of you as well. And certainly that not, is not inaccurate, but it's not the fullest story. See, those, there's two phrases here in verse 3 that as I was studying this, several scholars point to the fact that these are actually Hebrew idioms. There's two phrases. Because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many color, actually give us a, a fuller understanding of how dad is favoring Joseph. First phrase is this. He was the son of his old age. That doesn't mean that Joseph was the youngest of the boys because we know Benjamin is coming. Actually, that phrase has the idea that Joseph was a man who was wise beyond his years. The actual Hebrew idiom is the idea of a gray head on young shoulders, meaning Joseph is gifted. Whether it be in administration or leadership or just business savvy, Joseph is gifted and dad recognizes it. And then the second phrase, he made him a coat of many colors. Certainly that coat would have been expensive. But in giving of that coat, what it was, it was a physical representation of placing leadership in the family on Joseph, bypassing the firstborn and the secondborn and the thirdborn all the way down to ten. So what, what dad has done is he has unjustly showed abundant favor to the exclusion of the other boys, and the boys know it. Now, it's very possible, and I can't necessarily defend this, but I think Scripture would give us an inclination. It's very possible that Dad, Israel, who is also gifted in administration, in leadership, in business savvy, it's very possible that he's recognized, boy, Joseph looks a lot like me. Boy, Joseph, that guy is smart. Of course, if you look at the rest of the life of Joseph, everything he touches turns to gold. Now, certainly God was blessing him, but he knows what he is doing. He's a gifted administrator. And probably dad is looking at him and saying, man, this guy, he's smart, and I recognize it. And also, Joseph comes from the preferred mom. And so everything about Joseph has been lifted up. Now, if you lived in this family, did you know that this family, would it look incredibly familiar to 2021? It's a very dysfunctional family. There's four different wives... One, one dad, to, uh, 13 children from four different wives. Now, where our home church is, is on the north side of Milwaukee, and so we've had an opportunity to minister to the inner city part of Milwaukee. And what I just described, four moms, one dad, that's Milwaukee. And that might be Houston, too. In fact, this family looks a lot like 2021. And if you lived in this family, and if you were one of the ten older brothers, you would recognize what dad is doing is wrong and it hurts. Because we know that the father here is not supposed to provoke his children to wrath. He's not supposed to lead his family in this way. And so what I'm trying to get across is what dad is doing is wrong. And what the boys have recognized is that dad is doing something that is wrong. They've imbibed the hurt and it hurts. Look with me in verse 4. We're going to see the three different steps to how bitterness affects someone. Verse 4 says, And when his brethren saw. What the scripture says is they recognize what dad is doing is wrong. In other words, they perceived accurately an injustice. Does that sound familiar to 2020, 2021? In fact, our entire media and our world has been consumed with the thought of injustice. 
Now, have we seen injustice over the last year and a half? Absolutely. We have. Regardless if you're on the right side of politics or if you're on the left side of politics. Because if you're on the left side of politics, there's been injustice. And if you're on the right side of politics, there's been injustice. And the reality is, every single one of us has identified it in the world. And we often think we have a right to be angry at what's going on in Washington, angry at the, the news media. And it's all because we've recognized an injustice. And what these boys have done is they have seen with their eyes. They accurately perceived what dad has done is wrong. And I want us to understand this. Bitterness always starts there. That's bitterness always starts. It starts by accurately perceiving what that person did to me was wrong. You see, bitterness is very rarely made up. You don't usually imagine bitterness. In fact, bitterness always happens because what someone did to you legitimately hurt and they should not have done that. In fact, I was counseling while I was preaching at a, a camp this summer in West Virginia. I did not know the backstory of this young lady, but I was preaching a message and I was dealing with how uh, the devil wants to kill and steal and destroy. And the Lord worked in that message and there was a lady that responded in the invitation, a teen girl responded to the invitation. She went to the back and the girl that counseled her sat with her for nearly two hours counseling her. Finally, when I found out that the young lady had finally broke through, I asked, I said, what was the issue? She said, well, she's been bitter for years. So what was she bitter over? Because she had been raped by her youth pastor. Now, church family, none of us would ever say to that teenage girl, well, you made that up. You shouldn't have been bitter. We, we wouldn't say, now certainly we would, we would challenge her and counsel her against her bitterness. But we would all recognize, man, what you went through was awful. What you went through was wrong. Statistically, if statistics are true, there is a teenager in this room that has probably already at some point in your life been sexually abused in some way. You would never sit down with that teenager in here and you would say, hey, you shouldn't be bitter. We would counsel them against that. But we would never say, hey, you made that up. You imagine that. What they did to you wasn't right, or was, was something you just made up. No, you'd all sit there next to them. you put your arm around that teenager and you say, hey, that should have never happened. What that person did was wrong. And truly, church family, every time we've been in a position where we've had to counsel someone of that nature, we always go to the authorities because that person needs to be dealt with because what they did was wrong. I want you to understand, I am not minimizing the hurt. I'm not minimizing it. But what I'm saying this morning is, bitterness always starts with a legitimate understanding of wrong. But if it is not dealt with biblically, it will defile you. And the reason it is so hard to deal with bitterness is because you often feel like I have a legitimate right to be angry. I must hold on to this. And because you hold on to it, it defiles you from the inside out. Like Onoda, who held on to his fight for so many years, and it ruined his life. Church family, I don't know what has happened in your life, but some of you have grown up in a home where dad was never around. I remember counseling a young boy several years ago, and... I said to him, uh, again, inner city Milwaukee, where's your dad at? <laughs> Deadbeat dad, I don't know. Left our family when I was just a little boy. He said, mom would tell us on Saturday morning, your dad called, said he's going to be by to pick you boys up. He said, all three of us brothers would sit out front. We'd sit on the front step all Saturday morning waiting for dad. We were so excited to see dad. Dad would never show up. All day we'd sit there and we'd never see him. Next Saturday, dad called. He's coming to see you guys. All three of us boys would get excited. Maybe he'll come today and we'd sit on the front step. Dad would never come. He said, we begin to wonder, what's the matter with us? 
What's the matter with me that dad doesn't want to come? At 18 years old, that boy, all he had to say about his father was a deadbeat dad. Church family, that young man does need to honor him, but the reality is he's struggling with bitterness because he has been truly hurt. Some of you have been hurt that way too. Some of you, your dad wasn't around. Maybe some of you, your dad was there, but he wasn't involved, or he didn't know how to show love. Maybe some of you have been in a church before where a pastor hurt you, where a pastor did something carnally and never dealt with it, never publicly apologized, and so you feel you have the right to be bitter. Some of you have been hurt by your spouse, your wife, or your husband has treated you incorrectly and you feel hurt, you feel unloved, you feel disrespected. You see, I'm not trying to minimize the hurt, but what I'm trying to say this morning is, if you are bitter this morning, it is likely because you accurately recognize that is wrong, but if you stay there, the scripture says the brethren saw that their father did. They saw it, they recognized it was true, but your eyes, when you accurately perceive it, if you don't deal with it, your vision from that point on will be skewed. You see, bitter, ladies who get bitter at their husband or at their father, what they then do is they overlay that male failure on every other male authority, and they often get angry at men because of what their father did to them or what their husband did to them. We as men do it too. A young man who was burned by a girl when he was growing up gets bitter or frustrated at girls or, or mistreats them or abuses them because he's acting out of the bitterness that he had from the hurt when he was a child. What I'm trying to say, church family, is bitterness always starts by accurately perceiving the wrong. But if not dealt with, it will defile. And when the brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him. Meaning Joseph, they hated him. Bitterness always starts with the eyes. It affects the eyes, and bitterness always affects the heart. The boys came to the place where they were so frustrated at Joseph because he represented what dad was doing. Maybe they hated dad. The scripture doesn't clearly say that. Certainly they wanted to honor him in certain ways, but they did not love him because they were willing to lie to him. And so their, their, their bitterness and their hatred was poured out upon Joseph. And the scripture says they hated him, which means in their heart there is no longer an option for forgiveness. Their bitterness has squeezed out any opportunity for reconciliation. You see, what often happens when a person is bitter is the person who has hurt them, at first the, the, the relationship is, is edgy. But if it is not dealt with, it gets to the point where that relationship has been stiff-armed, put at a distance, and the person who has been hurt holds everybody at a distance because they just don't want to be hurt again. Bitterness moves into the heart and it moves out any emotion or feeling. I was counseling with a young man a couple years ago. He called me on the phone. If I was to tell you all of his story, you would understand why he was bitter. His parents, his, his older brother walked with God and, and his parents would constantly say to the younger boy, the man I was talking to, they would constantly say to him, why can't you be like your older brother? Boy, you ought to be like him. And they were comparing him to his older brother and it drove him nuts and he became bitter at his younger brother, or his older brother became bitter in his parents. And so uh, because his brother represented Christianity, he dove left. He, he went deep into uh, a pornography and he even dabbled with the occult because he was trying to, to act out of his bitterness. In fact, he told me one night uh, he had learned about a cultural, uh, cult ritual and, and he had performed it in the middle of the night while he was in bed. He said, a voice spoke to me out of the darkness. He said, it scared me half to death. He said, it proved to me that the spiritual realm is real. He said, I never dabbled with it after that. He said, but man, it's scary and it's real. And, and, and so he just continued. He didn't do any more cultish things, but he began to just to dig deeper into pornography. And he, the reason he was calling me, he said, Caleb, you could cuss me out. 
He said, you can call me every name in the book. You can chew me out, go up one side, down the other, and I won't feel a thing. And that's what scares me. He said, I don't feel anything. Nothing bothers me. I have no emotion. When bitterness begins to move into someone's heart, it squeezes out all opportunities for forgiveness. It squeezes out all opportunities for feelings. People who have been bitter for many years are often very emotionless. Bitterness always affects the eyes. It always affects the heart. And finally here this morning, bitterness always affects the tongue. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. What the scripture is telling us is that the boys got to the place where when they looked at Joseph, they couldn't say anything good about him. In fact, if they spoke about him, nothing good would come out, only evil because of what was in their heart. What the scripture is telling us, church family, is that bitterness, because it affects you, will be revealed through your mouth. Have you analyzed your speech recently? Has it revealed where your heart is at? Back in 2016, I was just finishing Bible college. I would have told you in 2016 that I had a great relationship with my father. In fact, I would have told you I love my dad. There's just a couple of things that my dad does that really irritates me. Now, I didn't think it was bitterness. I just said it was maybe a low-level resentment. It's, it's just uh, irritation. But the reality was, there's a few things that he did that just, whenever he would do it, man, I'd roll my eyes, I'd mutter under my breath, it would frustrate me, make me so mad. And a, a good indication, if you're bitter, is, is I would determine what he does, I promise myself I'll never do. Have you made vows in your life because of someone who has hurt you? You say, I'll never be that way. It's a good indication. It's because you were burned and you were hurt. And you're actually making a rash vow based upon somebody else's sin. Now, that's certainly not always wrong. You can say, man, that person hated me and didn't love me, so I'm going to love them. Certainly, it can be right, but it's a good indication. That's what I would do. I would say, I'll never act like that the way my dad was. Now, sometimes I hesitate to share what it was that my dad would do because it is very small and minuscule. But for me, it really bothered me. Now again, I loved my dad. So if you had come to me at that time in 2016 and said, you're bitter at your dad, I would have said, no way I'm not bitter at my dad. And you would have said, but look at these issues. I said, no, but I love my dad. See, I, I thought I can love my dad. It's just there's these things that frustrate me. So here's the two things he would do. Number one, he sneezed really loud. I get it. That's, that's so small. But the reality is when he would sneeze, it was something like, I do! And that's like, good night, are you kidding me? We don't need an alarm clock around here. Just sneeze at six and we'll all be up. Like, come, and, and I, whenever he would do that, I would, internally, I would just boil. Because it happened all my childhood. And, 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 and I, would, I would look at him, and I'd never said it audibly, because I respected him. But I would think to myself, what kind of attention are you trying to draw to yourself? Like, what's the matter with you? And then the second thing he would do is, whenever we were in the vehicle, if it was somebody else driving other than him, if he was in the passenger seat, my mom was driving, or if I was driving, or an older brother was driving, whatever, somebody else is driving, if something came out in the road, a, a deer, or moose, or pothole, whatever, and he didn't think you saw it, he would say, look out! <laughs> now, if you're driving, 
and uh, you're driving along like, oh, that's a deer. And then someone yells beside you. This is how I think through it. I'm thinking, I'm going to go in the ditch, not because of the deer. I'm going to go in the ditch because you yelled at me. Like, and, and so you can understand. And again, I understand. This is not on the level of, of abuse. I, I get that. So this is very small, but it illustrates the point. Because of what my dad would do, and when he would do it to my mom, I'm telling you, I would roll my eyes and think, old man, you don't know what you're doing to her inside. I was very frustrated with him. But I would have told you, I love my dad. So now it's 2016. I am just finished Bible college and I'm looking for a car. I needed to buy a car. Uh, my younger brother and my older brother were all working at the same place. We're all driving home from work uh, one day and I see a car on the side of the road. So my older brother, he's sitting in the passenger seat because he's the older brother and the younger brother's driving because it's his vehicle and because I'm in the middle, I'm stuck in the middle. And it's just a single cab, Toyota Tacoma or Toyota Tundra, so it's just a small truck. And so I'm crammed in the middle, got the rear view mirror right, right in front of my face and, and there I see a car go by. So I, hey, Josiah, uh, can we turn around and go back and look at that car? Hey, no problem. And so he puts his left turn signal, which is a good thing to use turn signals, Okay, the Lord works in mysterious ways, but you don't need to. So put your turn signal on. Anyways, so he puts his turn signal on, goes into the left turning lane, and I'm sitting in the middle. And here's a semi in the oncoming traffic, and it's coming this way. Now, it was fairly close to us, so the safe thing is you let the semi go by, and then you pull behind him because there's no traffic behind him. And my younger brother, for whatever reason that day, he pulled into the turn and then quickly pulled a quick U-turn right in front of the semi. Now, when I mean right in front of the semi, I'm not exaggerating this. When we pulled out internally, I'm thinking, what are you doing? And in, in the rearview mirror that I've got right in front of me, all I could see was grill. Like it was that close. And I am bracing for impact because I am thinking we are about to eat it. And internally, all of us are like grabbing for each other like we're about to get smashed. And my older brother, two words, he said, Josiah, go. Just like that. Josiah go. That little truck had a V8 engine. And so Josiah slams on the accelerator. It just lifted. I don't know how Toyota does this, but it just, it, the truck just lifted. And he slides to the side, gravel spinning, and <laughs> semi goes by. And he skids to a, to a halt on the side of the road. And I'm taking a deep breath. We're all taking a deep breath thinking, man, we were about to, I thought for sure we were going to be in an accident. And he finally come to a stop. Josiah puts it in park and it's just quiet. And my older brother speaks first. He says, Josiah, what, what were you thinking? It was just like that. Josiah, guys, guy, guy, I'm so sorry. I don't know. I don't know. I thought, I, I, don't, I don't know what had those wake. I'm really sorry. And then my older brother speaks again. He says, wow, I'm surprised how calm we were. And then I spoke. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody yelled like dad does. And I'm telling you, the words were not even out of my mouth when the Holy Spirit said, bitter. And I stopped mid-sentence because the Holy Spirit's voice was so loud, I felt like I'd been hit by a hammer sitting in the truck going, I can't deny this any longer. You see, what happened was my mouth betrayed me. The scripture says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. The reality is, church family, if I spend time long enough with this church. I am not a spiritual psychic, but some of you, if you are bitter, you'd let me know. Because you'd say it. It doesn't take long. I can be in a church family's home. It does not take long to find out between husband and wife whether or not our host is, if they get along. Because you'll hear it. I was preaching at a school in Illinois. Walked into the school day one. I've not met anybody. I don't know anybody. I've never been there before. I walk in to meet this uh, young lady. I said, hello, my name is Caleb Reed. And she says, hello, my name is Ashlyn. And don't tell me I look like my mom. 
I don't even know who your mom is. <laughs> Why would you even say that? And I found out later her mom was a teacher in the school. And I remember walking away from that, that conversation saying, whoa, I don't know this girl, but she just gave herself away. We preached all week in that school on Friday. She never responded all week long. I preached this message on bitterness. I looked right at her. I gave the invitation. If you're bitter, please raise your hand. Did not raise her hand. I looked right at her. If you're not bitter, raise your hand. She raised her hand. I thought, I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a spiritual know-it-all. I'm not maybe more spiritual discerning than anybody else. But she gave herself away. And I, I wrestled with it on Friday. She didn't respond all week long. Finally, on Friday, she broke. She sat down with the counselor. She's got mascara running everywhere. Tears are just rolling. And, and, and uh, the counselor came later and talked to us. And I asked the, young, uh, the counselor lady, I said, what, what, was, what was her problem? She said, oh, she was bitter. I said, who was she bitter towards? Her mom. You see, I'm not a spiritual know-it-all, but the scripture says if it's in there, it's coming out. And the scripture tells of these brothers, it says their voice gave them away. They couldn't get away with it. In other words, if they were bitter and tried to hide it, it would have come out because they can't hide it. Some of you are bitter at God. You know by the way you talk about him or the way you don't talk to him. And yes, you can reveal bitterness by a silent treatment. Ladies can do it to their husbands. Husbands can do it to their wives. Church family, how about you? Have you analyzed your speech recently? Pastor has not told me anything about this church. I, I don't know where you're at. But if you're anything like me, if you're made of the same stuff I am, you've been hurt. You've been burned. Could have been your father. It could have been someone you don't even know. You can even be bitter at dead people. Did you know that? Some people grow up in a family where dad died. He left the home and then died. They never got to know him, but they're still bitter at him. If you're bitter this morning, there is a solution, but you'll never come to freedom and bitterness until you recognize and we're willing to admit, I've got a problem. Ladies, are you critical? Bitter, uh, critical people are not always bitter, but bitter people are always critical. Ladies, do you nag your husband? I grew up in a, with a relation in my extended family Every time we were around this older lady, she was in her 70s, her husband was in her 80s, every time we were around her, it was painful because of the way that she would talk to her husband. She would chew him out. It was certainly never like, she would never use foul language. He'd spill something on the tablecloth and there you go again. You always do that. Little things like that. Making fun of him. You're always late. Why can't you dress? You dress like a slob. She's always cutting him down. As a man, it was very hard to watch another man be chewed apart by his wife. Come to find out, she had been deeply hurt by her father and she had it out against all men in her life. She went to her deathbed, as best we know, having never made it right. And it was painful to watch. She was a very critical woman. Ladies, are you critical? Men, do you refuse the love that your wife needs so desperately? Because you feel she doesn't respect you and because she doesn't respect you, you've gotten frustrated at her? Has your tongue betrayed you? I'm not trying to be unkind, church family. What I'm trying to say is if you are dealing with bitterness, Hebrews chapter 12 says you've been defiled. And you can't contain it because you're defiling other people. Your children are being defiled. Your grandchildren will be defiled. Your church is going to be defiled. You say, no one knows. I keep it inside. Don't kid yourself. It's coming out finish with this. There was a pastor friend of mine who lived in the state of Maine. It's where I grew up. 
he was an assistant pastor and also worked at a, a Ford dealership and so bivocational and, and one of his days off he and his wife were trying to clear some property. He and his wife had like three acres and, and most of it was wooded uh, with trees on it and so they had some young children. They're trying to clear the property to get more grass for the kids to play and so one day on his day off they had just spent all day long cutting. Cutting trees and cutting brush and so at the end of the day they were burning. They just burned brush, burned stumps, burned just everything. And I think it might have been two days that they were doing it because he said there was an entire day that all they did was burn. Just burn everything. And, and, and uh, for those of you who, who enjoy that kind of thing, it's kind of invigorating to have a burn day. You, gotta, you know, strap your uh, leaf blower on there, some gasoline, and just let her go. You know what I'm saying? And so they had burned all day long. And, 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 and after it was all finished, they'd finished the day, and he said, we, we sprayed it down with water, we put dirt on the fires, and we made sure it was out. He said, I went out there late at night before I went to bed and checked it all out, and it, and it, was, it was out. I went to bed. The next morning, I had to go to work, and so before I left for work, I went back out again to the backyard to make sure everything was out. I wanted to make sure the fire was out. He said, there was a few wisps of smoke here and there, but, but it, it was out. He went to work, and about noon that day, a man in the volunteer fire department was driving by his house, and out of the corner of his eye, he saw a raging inferno. The man, knowing what he was seeing, quickly pulled over. He didn't know the pastor at all, but he ran to the back, and the entire back area was, at a, uh, was just ablaze, and it was moving quickly towards the woods. Now, if you know anything about Maine, Maine is 90% forest, which means if, it, if you get a forest fire in Maine, it's going to cover acres, and it's going to destroy a lot of the state. And so this man uh, was put together as many garden hoses as he could and trying to go out there, but the, the fire was so big he couldn't do much. And so he's trying to hose down uh, trees that have not yet been, been hit by the fire. And so someone called the fire department and the pastor is paged at his work. And so he's now racing there. And, and by the time he got there, the fire department had, had emptied an entire tanker on his back lawn and filled it again and had, had uh, emptied half the tanker the second time. The fire chief later told him, he said, we were minutes away from it topping out, which means the fire uh, travels up the trees and gets into the top foliage. At that point, you can't fight it from the bottom. The wind will actually just skip it along, and entire acres can be uh, burned, consumed in a matter of seconds. If it that's how the big forest fires move out, out west. If you've seen videos of them, they just move so fast, that moving along like that, and the, and the chief told him, we were minutes away from it topping out. Finally, they got it all put out. And the pastor comes to the chief after the work is all done. He says, chief, I'm telling you, chief, the fire was out. I know the fire was out. I, 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 and the chief, chief stopped him. So we've seen this before. It's been a very dry summer and you were burning stumps. He said, what you didn't realize is when you were burning those stumps, the, the, the fire actually can get down into the root system, can burn underground. And what from the surface seems like it's all out can actually be smoldering an inferno underground. And if the roots get close enough to the surface where they can get a little air and oxygen, the fire springs back up through the ground and can take off again. And what he was describing is you need to beware lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. See, there's a lot of church people that say it's out. It's out. He's in the grave. The man who hurt me, the woman who, who hurt me, she's behind bars. That son who, who so pained me, he's moved to another state. The fire is out. I don't have to deal with him on a regular basis, so I think it's over. And the reality is, under the surface is a raging inferno. And given one opportunity of a memory, or someone make a comment, or that person show back up in your life, immediately the fire springs up and you become a man you never thought you were. Because it was never dealt with. How is it that Joseph could be so deeply wounded, so deeply hurt by his older brothers and never get bitter? 
Because Joseph, who is hurt by bitter people, gives us the solution for bitterness. He says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, here is the solution in one verse. As for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. And we know that all things work together for good to them that are to them who are the called, to them who love God according to his purpose. Those two passages tell us, give us the solution for bitterness. Church family, this morning, if you have been hurt, you've been burned, I'm not minimizing it, I'm not making fun of it. In fact, if you counseled with me or if I sat down with you and you told me your story, I would probably weep with you. Some of you have been hurt. Are you bitter this morning? Because it's defiling. The solution for bitterness is saying, Lord, though that hurt, I believe you are big enough that you can even use this for my good. You can work it out for my good. Lord, you can make me a deeper person. You, Lord, you can show your loving kindness. Lord, you who have forgiven me of so much, Lord, would you teach me your love for this person? Church family, this morning, if God has dealt with you, I plead with you, do not be as Hero Onoda who spent three decades of his life fighting a battle he would never win.